This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This is Honora. Don't waste all your money on food and clothes when you can have flowers in the garden. You can have a two-bob bun, half a clown bun, two-bob bun, four-bob bun, six-bob bun. Go steady, the game's fair. Here I was, retail of the year, multi-millionaire, and next minute I'm a pariah. I'm the most unpopular person in Britain. How did that happen? Never a silly joke. How do you lose a billion dollars in 10 seconds? On this episode of The Comeback, We'll find out how Charles Ratner did it. Once the most powerful retailer in Britain, the biggest jeweler in the world, and how he lost it all with a joke. See, it's almost like a precursor of that moment when somebody goes on Twitter and they tweet something controversial because they think they're tweeting to their 10 followers who are all like them. And they forget that it's a public statement and that different audiences will take your words quite differently. Was it just a joke? And what did Gerald Ratner say that caused an entire country and its news media to rally around his destruction? He was very successful and had made a lot of money and he almost looked down on the people that were buying his products. Gerald Ratner is a very, very funny man, and he's a and he's a laugh, and so you know he was just making a joke, really, um, but he just slightly misjudged it. Do I think taxi drivers are opinionated? Um, I would say they are. We'll be getting the opinions of the London black cabbie, the bloke down the pub, and the British public at large on what was a story that dominated the news for months. But first, let's hear how Joe Ratner upended the stuffy jewelry business with his unorthodox approach. One of Britain's most successful businessmen who revealed the secret of his success. He says he gives the public what they want. Total crap. <laughs> let's meet the man in the news, Gerald Ratner. I'm Sylvester Stallone, and this is The Comeback. So my father started the business in a rather unique way. He was based out in India in the army, and he met this guy who had Persian carpets. And my father said to him that I can get a good price for these when I get back to England. So my father went home on the ship, and he sold all the carpets because they were really lovely Persian carpets. He sold all these carpets, got enough money to open up his first shop. When I tell this story, they say you shouldn't really say it because it makes your father a bit of a crook. But because but he didn't send the money back to, for the carpets till the guy got in touch with him because he'd spent the money opening the first shop. So I've always learned 
you can't do things by the book, put it that way. Um, I've always felt that if you do things by the book and if you would have sent all the money back, he wouldn't have ever started Ratners. Gerald's father grew Ratners to 100 stores over two decades. But by the late 70s, it was starting to become old-fashioned and unprofitable. A thing that spurred me on more than anything, especially as I did so badly at school and everything, and I never really proved myself, um, was to prove to my father I could succeed. Having worked in the family business since 15, at the age of 30, he was made managing director. And Gerald had some revolutionary thinking on how to change the industry. You know, we were coming up for the 80s and, you know, everyone was talking about young businessmen building companies. And uh, I was the man to take Ratner's forward. And at the same time, Britain's first female prime minister had just been elected to power with her own brand of revolutionary thinking. Mrs Thatcher, a moment or two ago, in the black rover there, going into Buckingham Palace as the first woman prime minister of Great Britain. In this great hall, filled to capacity with young people who want to live your own lives in the way you choose. Young people want to stay free. It was the young people taking over at that time, and everything about us was staid and old-fashioned. I really wanted to change that. Well, the jeweler's shop always used to be sort of a rather frightening place to walk That's into. Right. What, was the, what was the most important thing you did to change that? Well, we, for a start, we got rid of the bars and the windows and uh, we brightened up the shops. We priced everything in the window. We played pop music in the shop. And the whole atmosphere uh, was much more receptive to younger people that perhaps, you know, wouldn't be seen dead in a jewellery shop in the old days. And it worked, obviously. People buy more jewellery now? Yeah, um, actually, they're buying more jewellery than anything else at the moment. My name's Charlie Beckett. I'm a professor at the London School of Economics, where I teach journalism and I run a journalism think tank. The British economy was taking off. There was a sense of everything uh, exploding. We had those yuppies with their Porsches and their sunglasses. There was a sense that the UK was a little bit like the Wild West. We'd got past the sort of liberation of the 60s. Well, by the 80s, this was fueled by uh, wealth that was spread uh, much more uh, across the population. You know, Mrs Thatcher had allowed people to buy their their council houses, people were going on holiday, and of course they were uh, loving buying uh, the very cheap and shiny jewellery that Gerald Ratner provided. Now, you own, at the last count, 1,750 jewellery shops. It's 1,800 actually, those figures are two weeks out of date. <laughs> You're trying to buy up the world of jewellery, aren't you? You want to own all the jewels in the world. You're cornering the market in diamonds, isn't it? Well, the jewellery market has been growing at a very fast pace over the last few years, and uh, it's always been a very sleepy industry, and we're just sort of taking advantage of the fact that we changed it and made it more affordable. And... Uh, How'd you do that? Gerald went on a recruiting spree going to markets up and down the country, poaching the noisiest, most persuasive salespeople to hawk punters off the high street and into his stores. I shall defend the 
best donkeys in the world. How many plums ain't for a pound? Five and out. Everyone in a business has to be incentivized. So we, for the first time, uh, offered the managers and the staff big incentives, big money to sell. And that really got them behind us to really promote the new way of, of, of doing things. As a result of what Ratners has done, they are now probably the largest buyer of diamonds in the world. They're certainly one of the largest buyers of gold. And they're able through that to achieve a buying cost which nobody else can duplicate. If one of the other jewelers tried to copy that now, they simply couldn't do it. Neil Wallace, former deputy editor of Britain's biggest tabloid, The News of the World, recalls just how massive Ratner's was. Yeah, at the time, Ratner's was just about the centre of every high street. You know, jewelers that used to be little hideaway places up an alley that, you know, rich middle-class folk went to to get their sort of subtle but expensive earrings was suddenly a big flash, bling-bling store in the middle of every high street. Lots of lights, lots of flashy stuff in the windows. You know, it, it, it was a huge, huge brand. And he killed it overnight. It was astonishing. I was 30, 35. I was making a lot of money, and my salary was 850000 a year. And that was 30 years ago. So that's probably eight and a half million today, plus all the perks that went with it. I drove home to my house in Highgate, and it was the most beautiful house. It was the first time I could really afford a fabulous house. Just to give you an idea, our neighbours on one side was Sting, and another one was somebody from Monty Python, and uh, George Michael. And I'd only been there about three months, and I loved this house. So I got into the house, and my wife said she wants a divorce. Because all I had was this tunnel vision of building the company. And when you get that amount of adrenaline and excitement from all those years, pent-up emotion of the frustration after working for my father, which was a nightmare because I was like nothing and treated like nothing, to then suddenly prove to him and the world and having the rain and being so successful. So nothing, family life was put aside, you know, and I was a nightmare. And she just closed the door and I was out. Ratner describes this period as one where he wasn't happy. He thought if he could just make more money, maybe he could be happy. So he turned his attention to the sort of decadence that only a decade like the 1980s can bring. I had this brilliant idea of getting a helicopter to go round the shops. So we went down to an airfield where the guy took us onto a, a little squirrel helicopter for 600,000. Then he took us up in another one, which I can't remember what it was, but that one was about 1.2 million. I think he must have known that this was the way to do it, because the third one that he took us up was a Sikorsky eight-seater, six-seaters in the back and two at the front. And this was the dog's bollocks. It was, really was the business. Uh, my finance director, Gary O'Brien, was with me, and I said, I bought it. Um, he says, what do you mean you bought it? It's two and a half million dollars. Did you ask for a discount? I said, no, I didn't get a discount, but he's thrown in the cushions. So although we were doing very well, I, you know, it was going a little bit to my head at the time, I feel. But I'm totally naive. You've got to remember, I'm in my 30s. I'm running a huge public company, and I don't know the first thing about it, you know. Um, all I know is about selling earrings and chains and getting the jewellery business right. So 
the share price was going mad and it was no longer now the biggest jewellers that I wanted to be. I wanted to be the biggest retailer. And in fact, I was voted then retailer of the year by NatWest. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Big companies like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, they employed retail analysts who basically their job was to second guess what your profits would be and do a report on the company. And the mistake I made was I listened to them. And they kept saying to me, well, you've now got 50% of the jewelry market, your ex-growth, because you cannot grow, you've grown phenomenally, but our job is to look ahead and you are ex-growth. I hated that because once you get to 50% of the market, you can't really basically grow at that rate anymore. We'd gone from 2% of the market to 50% of the market. We were not going to get to 100%. So I said, well, the only thing I can do then is um, to go to America. We were in Akron, Ohio, then we went to Detroit. I went met with the mall owners and they clearly told me that there was one jeweler that was busier than all the others. Here's looking at you, kid. K Jewelers for a legendary romance like yours. How did you know? Every kiss begins with K. So then I bought K's. They had massive debt. Uh, they were not understated with the balance sheet. This was a $500 million deal. Um, it was a big mistake. It was a deal too far. And the Financial Times, when we announced the deal, I remember them writing, Joe Ratner has gone to America and bought a business with indecent haste. We were issuing shares, you know, somebody once described it as like toilet paper, you know, just issuing and issuing so many shares. I was listening to the stockbrokers here, the analyst, who were talking up our profits. They actually, one year, they talked them up from 125 million to 220 million. That's 220 million pound profit, which is 350 million dollars 30 years ago. So we're talking big numbers. To me, the idea of not achieving those targets was worse than death. I was terrified, which looking back on it is absolutely ridiculous. But then, but I didn't know, you know, I've been in my early 40s by now. So I had to do acquisitions to meet those targets. And, you know, if I hadn't been so ridiculously ambitious, I could have sat on that company never expanded and got and sailed through life uh, without a problem in the world. It was the end of the 80s. Margaret Thatcher had been kicked out of office and the social and economic climate had turned sour. The beginning of the 90s was kicked off by the biggest political protests in decades. Everyone was talking about the retailers that were so successful in the 80s were all crashing. We were still doing fantastically well. Our sales figures were still holding up because it was the ones that were selling lower price products that were suffering the least. So we were doing very well. And I then got this um, letter. There was no email or social media or anything like that. I got a letter from the Institute of Directors saying, you know, you've bucked the trend. We'd like you to address our audience at the Albert Hall in front of 6,000 people. Tell us the secrets of your success. This was the Institute of Directors and they only picked the businessman that was in vogue. The Royal Albert Hall is London's most iconic venue, and it has been home to some historic performances over the years. From the Titanic Band's memorial concert in 1912, to Bob Dylan, David Bowie, and all the way to Adele. 
Ratner would soon be joining these ranks, but for all the wrong reasons. He'll be delivering his speech to Britain's business elite, the news media and the televised public at large. Um, I was running the biggest consumer PR agency in the UK in the 80s and early 90s, and Gerald Ratner was one of my clients. So she said, oh, well, what a wonderful opportunity to talk about doing good for people. And I thought, oh, bollocks, you know, I heard all this claptrap so many times about being green. And it was something that didn't appeal to the Gerald Ratner of the... Gerald Ratner today is a different person, but this young, arrogant, thrusting person who thought he could walk on water told Lim Franks where to get off. And I said to him that we're moving into a different world now. It's the end of the 80s. We're going to be sharing and caring. And uh, you need to be seen as sort of a responsible businessman who cares about his customers. And he looked at me as if I was mad, and he made the joke, and the rest is, as we know, didn't go down too well. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Good afternoon, Mr. President. Your Royal Highness... Ladies and gentlemen, and thank you, Mr. President, for asking me to address such a prestigious audience. And the theme of today's conference is quality, choice, and prosperity, which I think links quite nicely with our businesses. Zales, the diamond specialist of the group, represents quality. H. Samuel represents choice, while Watches of Switzerland certainly represents prosperity. So that leaves me with the original chain, Ratner's. And I have to admit that while it offers choice with its 99p earrings, it's positioned very down market. We've got this uh, nice sherry decanter, it's cut glass, and it comes complete with six glasses on a silver-plated tray that your butler could uh, bring you in and serve you drinks on. And it's really only cost £4.95. pence. <laughs> People say to me, how can you sell this for such a low price? I say, because it's total crap. <laughs> um, uh, it's no point beating around the bush. Anyway. Uh, we even sell a pair of earrings for under a pound. Gold earrings as well. 
And some people say, well, that's cheaper than a prawn sandwich from Marks and Spencers. But I have to say, the sandwich will probably last longer than the earrings, but anyway. <laughs> Everyone in the audience laughed and I was so relieved, it was such a wonderful feeling that it was over because I was so nervous about speaking to all those people. But it went brilliantly and they all laughed at the right time. And then a guy from the Daily Mirror came up to me and he said, uh, aren't you making fun of your customers? The next morning, uh, as I come out to get in my car, even though my office was only five minutes away, I had to have a driver with a Bentley to take me there for some God knows reason. He had the tabloids. He had all the tabloids. I said, what are you doing there? He says, well, you're all over them. Look, this is a story, that was a headline that wrote itself, wasn't it? Um, because this was very much the end of the 80s, which were all about blatant bling, 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 and loads of money and that kind of stuff. And it was all about working class people suddenly getting their hands on loads of wonga. And they went and spent it at places like Ratner's. And then this guy stands up and he tells all of those people who were very proud of their new wealth. And they're the generation that was just buying their new council houses because of Mrs. Thatcher. And so aspiration and property were a huge, huge thing. And uh, he said, everything I've been selling you is a load of crap. I mean, what an extraordinary, arrogant thing to do. And we were quite literally dumbfounded on the back bench and said, well, we'll have some of that. And we ran with it from there. The headline in The Sun was Rotners, R-O-T-N-E-R-S. And the headline in The Daily Mirror was you 22 karat gold mugs meaning, well, how stupid are you for going into his shops buying crap and him laughing all the way to the bank? It was absolutely diabolical. Firstly, they said, I said it, all my jewellery's crap. They also then said that um, he loves making fun of his customers and he lives in this Mayfair house and he's got a private jet and uh, he's got a house in the country and there's a pictures of all my house and there's a headline, the house that crap built and just everything you could imagine. It was as dire as any, anything could be. And even the uh, serious papers, the Independent, I remember saying that the difference between a misfortune and a calamity is this, that if Ratner fell in the River Thames, that would be a misfortune. But then if somebody dragged him out again, that would be a calamity. So everyone had a go, from the tabloids to the, to the broadsheets. Everyone hated me. I was public enemy number one. The Red Sox annihilated him and they, because it was Joe Public that he was selling to. Let's say a couple go in and genuinely uh, in love, the whole thing, get married, and he, they, they get their engagement ring, wedding ring from Ratness. To look on the papers to be told that it's crap. When their whole life was pretty much built on it. Devastating. Our highest ever readership figure was something like 11 million adults in a country of 50 million. In real terms, that was getting on for one in three people a day were reading The Sun. That is immense reach, immense power. And we could make or break people. Tabloids could make or break people. There was an element of class about this. This was somebody who had built himself up 
um, he'd become incredibly successful. And I think in front of that audience uh, to say those things, and critically, of course, then for the tabloid newspapers to take those words to another audience, i.e. the people who actually buy that jewellery, I think that was the, um, the sudden moment when his um, different worlds collapsed. I didn't intend to insult my customers. Why would I do that when it was being televised? I'm not that stupid. Um, but it was a daft thing to say. It was my arrogance of thinking, because I'd all up until then got the best publicity in the world. So I never realised that that could change. I couldn't imagine that the newspapers who had written about how successful I was and how they looked out to me, how they could suddenly turn on a sixpence. The next day, our sales dropped by 5%. I thought, well, if they're only 5% down, that's not so bad. We'll make this up. But everyone was talking about it. Everyone was making jokes about it because it was great fun. And I remember some comedian in front of Prince Charles uh, said, I am to acting what Gerald Ratner is to jewellery. Uh, and Prince Charles was laughing. Said, Everybody found it funny. Uh, and it went on and on. And instead of being 5% down, we were then 10% down. We were then 50 and then Ratner's were 25% down. You know, there's this myth that stories like in a kind of Watergate, Woodward and Bernstein way, you, you get stories by carefully scraping away and digging and then you discover something. The reality of a lot of uh, journalism, especially around scandal and celebrity and politics, is basically a kind of trade. Um, you, you know there's a story, um, you go to the source, and there is a kind of bargain to be made. Um, we've got some information that you prepared to cooperate, you prepared to sort of play this game. And in many cases, as Ratner himself found, it was better to play the game, uh, to take the hit and negotiate some kind of uh, reply, right of reply. Then I decided to go on a show called The Terry Wogan Show. This was a great opportunity to apologize and to try and explain about this whole disaster. And I could turn it all around. One of Britain's most successful businessmen who revealed the secret of his success. He says he gives the public what they want. Total crap. <laughs> <laughs> Let's meet the man in the news, Gerald Ratner. So I go on The Wogan Show, and Terry Wogan's very funny, and... Uh, He's actually bought the sherry decanter. How would you describe that? Total crap? <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't describe any of the products that we sell as crap or total crap. Yes, you did. Yes, I described this as crap because... <laughs> well, it might have been naive of you then, do you think, to have said that? Yes, it was a bit naive, but I mean, the press uh, got to sell newspapers like, I've got to sell jewellery. <laughs> I mean... Is it not bad for business, this kind of thing? What that achieved, being on that show, was basically to inform the 50% of the population that hadn't even heard the story. Uh, so now 100% of the, of the UK had now heard this story and sales went even further down. I phoned up Kelvin McKenzie, the editor of The Sun. Well, McKenzie is an absolutely emblematic figure. Uh, I mean, Americans, when they talk about journalists, will talk about Woodward and Bernstein and Dan Rather. But if you're talking about the history of certainly popular mass journalism in the UK, uh, Kelvin McKenzie has a starring role. And I said, 
Kelvin, look, I made a mistake, but, you know, you're writing about this story every fucking day of the week. You know, you won't leave it alone. And I'm now closing shops and making people redundant. Do you think you could now stop? He said, I'll do it on one condition. I said, what's that? He says that you pose with a gun to your head. I said, I haven't got a gun. He says, I'll supply the gun. So he sent a girl around with the gun. And he says, if you uh, let my photographer take a picture of you with a gun to your head saying that I'm sorry, I will drop it. So I do it. And he wrote that story. And Kevin McKenzie just carried on <laughs> with the story, completely reneged on his agreement. The Sun readership wasn't a yuppie readership. It wasn't aspiring middle class. It was uh, proud, devoted, rolling in money, working class. You know, and uh, they were very proud that they could now wear jewellery that the upper classes had always worn. And the brighter, the better. Which was Ratner's point in a way. He he was actually saying, um, look, uh, this stuff is actually crap, but it makes people feel good. And so what's wrong with that? That's what he was trying to say, but he got carried away with himself, really. You know, he had a, actually a slightly valid um, sociological point to make. If you think about what uh, Joe Ratner had done, he had not done anything uh, criminal. He hadn't cheated anybody or uh, avoided his taxes, um, but he had offended the great British public. And it was interesting that they wouldn't have been offended if it hadn't been for the tabloid reporting of what he had said and that the way that they cast that as offensive to their readers. And in that sense, I think the uh, British tabloid newspapers are more moral than the Church of England. The Church of England is pretty relaxed, frankly, about sin. Uh, but if you have sinned in the eyes of the sun or indeed the Daily Mirror or the Daily Mail, then they will come down on you with a ton of uh, ethical bricks. These newsrooms may not be paragons of virtue themselves, but on behalf of their readers, they can be incredibly censorious. The volatility of Ratner shares this morning reflected growing concern about the world's biggest jewellery group. At one point, £10 million was wiped off the value of the company. Now, the prestige had gone from 100% to 0%. And everybody hated working for it because every, all their friends made fun of them. You work for Ratners? You, how's crap going? I mean, people still say that to this day. I come in the fishmongers last week and uh, you say, oh, Mr. Ratner, everything you sell is crap. Everybody in the line laughs at this or something. You know, they still think it's funny. Um, but, you know, the morale had gone through the floor and I couldn't handle it. The millionaire jewellery shop's owner gave no secrets away as he left his Mayfair home this morning. It'll be a normal day, well, as normal as it can be. But it won't be that normal. In less than two hours, he'll announce he's standing down as chairman of Ratners, but continuing to run the company as chief executive. A non-executive chairman will be appointed to help the business through its present crisis. So anyway, so brought in a chairman. And this guy was a very tough... Scottish, serious, elderly gentleman, Jim McAdam. Britain's jewellery baron, Gerald Ratner, in a reflective mood. He remains chief executive, but this man takes over as chairman. No hard feeling. We're sure we're going to make a, a good team. 
and uh, I think we're working to a common objective to uh, take this group forward. So I'm absolutely delighted that I've found the right man to split the roles with. I was, it was like working for my father again. I could not believe that I was back in this situation where I was nothing and I had to listen to everything that he said and he was making decisions without consulting me and bringing in board members, which I didn't realise were these non-executives were basically all his cronies to give him control of the board. I think Ravens face quite a serious financial crisis. Uh, they have a lot of debts, they have too many stores, the market is falling and their dividends will have to be suspended. So their share price is, is falling very sharply. Later this week, Gerald Ratner will have to explain to shareholders why business is bad and his own future could be at risk if there are not suitable answers on things like loans of more than £400 million to the banks. Jim McAdam, the chairman, decided that the Ratner's name couldn't continue because it, had been, it was toxic. So he decided not only to close the Ratner's stores, built up by my father originally and something I'd grown up with and loved, and I had to see this guy come in closing those shops and rebranding the group, Signet Group, rather than Ratner's Group. He wanted to expunge the name Ratner, and here I was sitting in the office, expunge the name Ratner from the face of the earth. And that's what I had to be part of. You know, it's like going to your own gallows or something. <laughs> and of course that resulted in the worst 18 months of my life, culminating in him firing me. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. After I left Ratner's, I'd had share options that had gone to nothing, yet I still had to pay the tax on it. So I had a million pound tax bill. I had to sell my house. The shares had gone to 2p, so I had no equity. I had no value in the shares. I was absolutely wiped out. So this man who had millions and millions of pounds was suddenly was all in shares. It all went. Uh, I had absolutely nothing. I felt that I'd gone back to square one, like a game of snakes and ladders. I'd climbed up the ladder from a low point, and here I was back where I was in the first place, which is quite depressing because <laughs> I'd put in a lot of work to achieve what I had done. I wrote to 20 companies and I got 21 rejections. I was no, I was unemployable. I used to read it in the paper. I knew I was unemployable because I read it in the paper saying he's unemployable. So I must have been unemployable. 
There were some days I didn't even get out of bed in those seven years. I mean, there used to be a joke that I used to watch this daytime quiz program called Countdown. I remember my wife coming into the room, knocking on the door, and I said, well, who is it? And she said, who do you think it is? Who's, there's nobody coming to see you in your bedroom at four o'clock in the afternoon. And she's going to have a word with you. And I said, no, at the moment, I'm watching this important program. That's how stupid I was. You know, if you're in a room with a smell, you don't actually smell it till you go out to the fresh air. I'm living in this make-believe world where I thought everything was fine. And I was actually trying to work. It was, you had to work out these conundrums. And I was really happy with myself that I was working out these conundrums. The fact that I was completely skinned and had debt was totally irrelevant. And it, ironically, there was an advert that kept repeating itself on the, in Countdown, which is where, where you could um, consolidate all your debts under one easy monthly payment. And that, I was really tempted to do that because I had all these debts. And I remember they used to say, and there's an attractive carriage clock, we're just inquiring. <laughs> so that's how low I, I reached myself. And my father could, knew that, and he was worried about me, and as was a lot of people. I'd basically believed everything that was said about me in the press. I was a poster boy for failure. The one thing that was keeping me sane, which I still do to this day, is cycle. And I started cycling and cycling and cycling. And then I realized that I was cycling on the wrong bike, a mountain bike, which was the worst bike you could ever, because it's so slow and thick wheels. And I changed to a road bike, which just whizzed along. And then I started going the further the possible from home. I used to cycle in a hundred miles in a day, but it, but it was keeping me sane. And then I could see the benefit of exercise for the first time in my life. And I thought, I want to go into this business after seven years of doing nothing. So I found a uh, site, said to the agent, I'd like to rent it, even though I had no money. And she said, well, if you go bust, she probably will do, uh, knowing you, because that's how everybody talked to me, um, then it would just revert back to the landlord. So the only way you can acquire it is three quarters of a million pounds. I devised this scheme. Why play this by the book? So I decided to announce that I'd bought the club. I'd bought the building and it was going to open in three months, which was a complete and utter dream in my head. And I put an advert in the Henley Standard selling membership to this club that didn't exist. And I put an artist drawing, which again was it just a sort of wet dream, and I just imagined it of how this fab fabulous, with a swimming pool and a huge gym and a spa, it was just made up completely. And this fabulous luxury health club is going to open up in three months. And if you join my club, I will waive the joining fee. 800 people signed up for this club. So I went back to that same bank manager. He still wouldn't lend me the money. But then one of the banks that I went to eventually, after going, I think, about 12 different banks, all said no. The 13th bank manager actually um, said, I'm going to lend you the money. And it turned out that his wife had actually joined up. She was one of the uh, people that had joined up and signed a direct debit. And she particularly wanted the club to open in, a, in where he lived in Henley. We opened the club and we got 3,000 members and I sold it for £4 million in cash. And that money 
after what I'd been through was worth more than any of the millions that I made at Ratner's. I couldn't believe that I'd, I'd managed to get back on my feet again. I, I thought I'd show off to my dad, nothing ever changes, try and impress him even after all this, because I'd lost it all and I thought I'd... Because lo- he was very much in awe of what I'd achieved, in fairness to him. But then when I lost it all again, um, I had to start impressing him again. So I took him to the health club. And he'd never seen a health club before. And there was a guy running on a treadmill and he couldn't understand why somebody would run on a treadmill when they're not going anywhere, running on the spot. He thought this was a complete... He just could not get his head around this at all. He'd never seen it before. But, um, well, he was glad because he'd seen how I'd suffered. When he died, there was no longer that person that I used to think about. Yeah, it, it was a big thing for me because I'd been obsessed with my father from a very early age. Anyway, um, I was surprised at how upset I was. Um, I felt that, you know, he was always there for me. And a lot of the time, I felt that everything that I did, in a way, was him looking at me. And would he approve? Which I always used to say, well, would Dad think this is a good idea? Would Dad approve of this? Or would Dad think I'm doing the right thing by reading this book even or something like that? You know, I always used to think about him as um, really, you know, he had more influence on my life than anybody else and loved him very deeply. We asked Gerald, what would he rather have? The billion-dollar company or the life he experienced afterwards? Now, there's an old expression is when you get fired, they say you're going to spend more time with your family. And it's just very true. Because when I did get fired, I spent more time with the family. And it wasn't as bad as I thought. In fact, it was great. And uh, I had more time to develop relationships with my two children from my second marriage than I did with my two children in my first marriage. And I took them, drove them to school, and I spent a lot of time talking to them. I took them to pantomimes and all the type of things I tried to avoid doing um, the first time around. And I became a much better father uh, and happier. Yes, it wasn't the old Gerald Ratner of running the business and being a big shot, but it was a different sort of Gerald Ratner who was getting a different sort of pleasure out of life. Maybe people can do it and have the best of both worlds, have it all, but I couldn't. I do a lot of things that I wouldn't dream of doing uh, in the old Gerald Ratner. One of the things is that I'm very close to my dog uh, and spend a lot of time walking the dog, talking to the dog who's very intelligent, uh, taking him to restaurants and pubs, um, and people laugh about it, but I'm very, very close to the dog. He's a Labrador. His, his name, well, he's got lots of names. His official name is Benji, but he looks a bit like a teddy bear, so we call him Bear. Ready to go for a walk? Yes? Yes? Okay. Yeah, I think I got the picture there. There's this Indian restaurant near where we live called Malik's, and I said, we're having Malik's tonight. He knows exactly, and he sits by the door waiting for me to go and get the takeaway. He knows the difference between Indian cuisine and Chinese. I mean, 
he every single word he understood. He must have a very big vocabulary. I adore my son. I came up to London today on the train with him because he's got a job she's very excited about doing the traffic on the radio. Uh, my daughters are very successful. One's gone to live in LA, producing TV programs and stuff like this that we're doing. Um, and then um, my other daughter is in a business where they're lending money on peer-to-peer and she's doing fantastically well. So my great achievement are my children when I look back, really. Um, I, I can't say where I would have gone if I'd have stayed in Ratners and not made that speech. I might not be married. I might be to my third or fourth wife by now because nothing was good enough for me in those days, you know? I got on a flight or in a hotel. The room wasn't good enough. Now I'm happy to go... Ryanair and stay in a room overlooking the car park, it doesn't bother me anymore. So I'm a different person. We're in an age now that's sort of like everything that anybody says is jumped upon and it can be misinterpreted. You know, and people believe everything they read. I mean, I'm kind of one I like to read between the lines a bit. I think um, in America, they're much more tolerant of public figures who screw up or is seen to be fallible. There's more of a sort of confessional culture. You're allowed to rehabilitate yourself much more quickly. And there's much more admiration, frankly, in places like America for entrepreneurs, people who, who get rich, even if they're tough and even if their morals aren't exactly squeaky clean. People admire power and success. And I think in the UK, it's more of a mix. I think that um, there has, especially since the 80s, been much more of a less deferential culture. We like to see outsiders uh, on the make. Uh, but at the same time, I think, especially in the UK, there's a kind of cynicism. Um, and you could argue that's uh, partly to do with, you know, our class system, perhaps. Uh, it's partly fostered by uh, this incredibly competitive, critical uh, news media that we have in the UK. Uh, they build them up and you knock them down. Uh, and in that sense, there is a sort of ritual about how you rehabilitate. Uh, and in Ratner's case, he immediately went out uh, and said, I'm really sorry, I was an idiot, um, and held his gun uh, to his head for the, the follow-up Sunfront page. Um, but I think it was very difficult for him to ever recover that sense of being this you know, extraordinary entrepreneur, man in touch with the people. Uh, and I think in that sense, uh, Britain is a much more uh, cruel place for those people who stumble and fall. While Gerald may not have recovered his family's jewellery business, what he lost gave him time with his children, the opportunity to build another successful business and an appreciation for a fuller, richer life. The Comeback is brought to you by Imperative Entertainment and is created, written and edited by Giles Andrew and Elliot Watson of Honora Productions. Executive producers are Sylvester Stallone and Braden Aftergood of Balboa Productions, Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment, and Trevor Groth of 30 West. The Comeback is produced by Honora Productions and Balboa Productions in association with 30 West. Original music for the series composed by Dan Powell, sound design and sound mixing also by Dan Powell. Poster design and graphics by Dana Kim and Ricardo Imperial. Special thanks to Gerald Ratner, whose book, Reinvent Yourself, is available now. 
We also wanted to thank Charlie Beckett, Lynn Franks, Neil Wallace, Stella Wood, John and Deborah Jensen. Special thanks to Ryan Abushi, Dawn Bishwal, Alex Witherill, and Charles Denton. Key art photography of Sylvester Stallone by Michael Putland. Please subscribe, download, and share, and follow us on social media for extra content and updates. Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.